Let's see. Okay, well, thank you all for coming um, to this event. Um, as many of you may know, the UA Campus Bookstore, we're um, undergoing some renovation, so events will be held in 2016 at the bookstore right now. We're fortunate to have this space here at the uh, UAA APU Consortium Library in room 307 for the events. Um, for bookstore events here, we have free parking in the uh, library lot, the library northeast lot, and the east parking garage. So you didn't have to pay for parking. Um, if you didn't pay and get a ticket by mistake, just see me. I'm Rachel, easy to find at the bookstore, and I can take care of it right away. So that shouldn't happen, but mistakes do happen. Okay, so um, right now I want to welcome Gabriel Burnett, who is going to introduce our guest speakers. Um, Gabriel is the Community Outreach Director at the Anchorage Museum, and she also um, has been faculty here at UAA in the uh, Liberal Studies Department. And also, uh, I know Gabriel because of her work at Out North a few years ago in the community. So um, anyway, here is Gabriel Barnett, and thank you all for coming. So um, I will introduce the speakers in a minute, but first, because they're going to be talking about photographs in the Anchorage Museum collection, I want to talk a little bit about that collection. So the Anchorage Museum has a non-circulating public access collection of over 500,000 images. 10,000 of them are available on Alaska's, Alaska's digital archives, so you can just log on and see them. Um, that's a lot of pictures, but that's only 1 50th of what we have in our collection. Um, to work with the rest of the collection, you don't need an appointment. You don't have to pay museum admission. Um, but if you are planning on using the images, you will need to deal with copyright issues, and you probably want a budget for reproducing things. <laughs> um, so I want to make a distinction between three different kinds of photographs. Um, first, there are professional and commercial photo stock. And names like Ward Wells or the Lohman Brothers or Bradford Washburn, um, Lucian Liston, Stan McCutcheon are pretty well-known names of um, professional photographers who worked in Alaska. And we do have lots of images by those people in the collection. Um, then there's official documentation. So the government wanted the Matsu colony documented. There's lots of photographs of the Alaska Railroad um, in the collection. So that's an official history that's visually represented. Um, the third kind of photograph are amateur photographs, often thought of as family snapshots. Um, and so those, a lot of our collection is that kind of work. It's sort of an unofficial history of Alaska. It gives you the personal side of things as well as the public. Um, so we have photographs by famous people like Joe Reddington, not famous as a photographer, but we have his collection. Um, and we have photographs by people like William Svensson, who spent one year of his life in Alaska and then moved on, but he's left us a lot of photographs. Um, so it's this third category that Carolyn and Samantha are going to focus on tonight. So I will introduce, we've been hear from Samantha Hill, who is a Rasmussen Artist-in-Residence at the Anchorage Museum for another few days. Um, she's a transdisciplinary artist from Chicago who enjoys connecting archives, social projects, and art facilitations. For example, her kinship project was created from a collection of 3,000 3, family photographs taken between 1867 and 2012, primarily of African Americans from across the country. Samantha received her MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and her BFA from Moore College of Art and Design. Um, we also have Carolyn Kozak, who's curator of special exhibits and programs at the Anchorage Museum at the Rasmussen Center. Most recently, in 2014, Carolyn curated City Limits, an Anchorage Centennial project that explored the history of this city. Her new exhibition, which is going to open on Friday, 100 Snapshots, reflects her prior experience working with historic photographs as collections technician and the William E. Davis intern with the Atwood Resource Center. Passionate about the value of family albums and informal photography, Carolyn Kozak offers public presentations on the art of the photo album. And over there, I put some handouts. One is um, just the general Atwood Resource Center guide, and the other is um, some resources if you're actually interested in preserving family collections. So we're going to turn it over to these two ladies now. We're going to uh, work with guys up a little bit first. So... Um, you can turn them down a little bit. That'd be great. Thanks. 
So um, we're going to do a facilitated discussion about what this great photo that we have up right now uh, to get you guys talking a little bit. So I had this crazy art history professor at William & Mary who was a 17th century Dutch um, specialist. And the Dutch painters painted these really elaborate paintings of everyday life with food and debauchery and she called them a feast for the eyes. And so I, I picked this photo because I think it's a feast for the eyes. This came from the Anchorage Museum collection and there's a lot happening here. So my first question for you is, what's happening in this photo? And there's no right or wrong answer. You can say whatever you want. It's crystal. What do you see that makes you say that? Tinsel and ornaments on the trees and that stuff. Okay, so Julie's seen the decorations in the photograph and it's making the observation that it's probably Christmas. What more can we find? Lots of loot. What? Lots of loot. Oh, yeah. Uh, what do you see that makes you say that? Well, there's, there's a book and there's a truck or something in the trailer and got a nice six shooter there. <laughs> All kinds of things. Okay, so Jeremy's looking at the vicinity and the background here and seeing that, you know, it, because they're under the tree, these are probably gifts or loot. What more can we find? His old television probably just looks cute. Yeah, what do you see that makes you say that? It's just really old. <laughs> it's in a box, and it's, um, it looks like when I had it when I was a kid. So you're looking at the technology in the photograph and trying to assess what era it's from. Nice. What more can we find? A photo. A photo in a photo. Yeah, what do you see that makes you say that? Well, I see the little black and white photo on top of the TV. So you're seeing this here. What more can we find? Well, I think the color scheme is kind of interesting with all the yellows and, and oranges and reds. And that's actually what makes the photograph on top of the TV set stand out, is that uh, the, the sort of color theme. And then all of a sudden, there's just this simple black and white image, which is repetitious of the figure in the center on top of it all. So that it makes it kind of interesting. Yeah. So. So Greg's taking Jeremy's idea a little further and noticing the color contrast between the two images of the same boy. What more can we find? The chair is really an old one too. I, <laughs> you don't see those anymore. I have one. <laughs> <laughs> so again, looking at items in the photograph and trying to pick out the time period. I think he got some presents from his grandparents. Yeah, what, what are you sure? Julie's seen some, some clothing here, which, as we know, children don't like to get for Christmas, and assessing that maybe grandma and grandpa were involved. A lot of flag. Yeah, definitely. What more can we find? I can't tell what it is, but there's something that says parcel, but they bring down in the corner. Yeah. Is that like I think it's a train set or something. Oh. A van. Oh, a car. Oh, okay. okay. What do I was going to say, it looks like a uh, flexible flyer slip. Ah. So the sled's been spotted in the back here. So what do you what do you see that makes you say that? Well, the the, the particular model. I just I've seen them around over the years, mm -hmm. and I, I, I mean, I'm not sure if they were also probably the only large manufacturer of those or other sleds in what I assume is the '60s. It's almost like the photograph was set up and that all of the items are sort of on display. Um, you know, the covers are off of the boxes and the shirts are propped up on the chair and I would assume that maybe this is a photograph that he sent to relatives as a thank you card or something like that. Alright, um, so Greg's seeing that things have been sort of uh, purposefully displayed and arranged and uh, perhaps specifically for the photograph with the intent of it being shared. What more can we find? So looking at the items in the photograph and assuming what they're using for, perhaps pinning it down to a specific region. What is the book? Is this, what does that say? The title of the book? Yeah, trophies. I can't trophies. make out the. Oh, yeah. Let's see. There's more. There's more photos here. I'm gonna go through these quickly. These are less of less of a feast for the eyes. So. 
what's happening in this photograph? What do you see that makes you say that? Well, it looks like uh, the outline of the mirror against a darker wall. And then, of course, the camera, which seems to have picked up their own image. So you think that uh, based on the camera being featured and perhaps the framing of the photograph, that this is likely a reflective self-portrait. What more can we find? So you're looking at the other items in the in the photograph, and thinking maybe it's a that's an evening out on the town here. They're about to head out. What more can we find? Seems unlikely to use the street finder. <laughs> yeah. What do you see that makes you say that? <laughs> so uh, you're looking at the placement of the camera in relation to his eyes and thinking that maybe he's just shooting from the hip. What more can we find? It seems like they're maybe working cars. What do you see that makes you say that? So you're looking at the clothing of the three individuals and getting a sense of you know maybe what they do for a living or how they spend most of the time in their lives. What more can we find? I was seeing college students because the guy on the left has a, like a tweed jacket on. Mm. Right. Move on. I'm gonna skip this guy. We'll go directly to the the big show here. What's happening in this photograph? What do you what do you see that makes you say that? Yeah, so Rachel sees a sign up here. So it's in front it says, of a store. Yeah. It's on what is it? Is that Fourth What do you uh, what do you see that makes you say that that it's staged? Mm -hmm. Well, the little I say it's a I assume it's a girl, but the is looking at her a little bit. Okay, so you're looking at this figure here in the foreground. And she's the older woman she's looking at. Mm -hmm. And how many people are there? The three in the first and then on the others. And then he she has a hand with this a man, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at the clothing in the photograph and drawing relationships of individuals to one another based on what they're wearing. What more can we find? Well, the, the lady on the left's not really looking at three individuals. Like what do you see that makes you say that? Because she's not engaged with them except to take the picture. Mm -hmm. She's dressed differently. So you're noticing the space <laughs> between these two groupings and... Um, the placement of the camera between that space or in that space and um, making the observation that they're probably not together or related to one another. What more can we find? The mountains in the background, it's not uh, Fairbanks. Okay, so you're looking at uh, the surrounding environment and making a call on where this probably is or at least isn't. What more can we find? Yeah? What do you see that makes you say that? 
All right. So I'm going to break our conversation really quick and say that this is one of my favorite photographs in the collection. I came across it years ago, probably three or four years ago, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head, and I finally got to use it this year for 100 snapshots. It is Anchorage. It's for rendezvous time, and um, there's what I find interesting about this is the, like the levels of looking that are happening right now. So the main action is looking away from um, you know, if we're holding the camera that's taking this photograph, and you have this added layer of voyeurism here, so you're watching, you're taking a photo of someone else taking home movie of just passerbys who are clearly sort of labeled as the other in this photo, and there's a lot that you could talk about here. It's just, you know, it's obviously she, she shot it pretty quick, it's crooked, it's a little blurry, it's you know, it's cropped a little funny, but there's a lot that you could talk about. Time period, relationships, culture, um, social norms. I mean, even just her proximity to the people that are walking by and nearly sticking a camera in their face. This is a really interesting photograph. So anyway, that was our warm-up. But I'm going to turn it over to Samantha now. She's going to tell you about her wonderful projects. So. What year was that? I was in the late 50s. 50. Mm -hmm. so. And let's go. All right, so, um, hello. <laughs> oh, my name is Samantha Hill. Um, I'm a Chicago artist that works with basically archives. Um, I'd like to give you a little bit of a background or a history of how I became um, interested in um, snapshots in the family photograph. Actually, it's something I stumbled upon um, through an eBay, eBay obsession. <laughs> um, basically, as an artist, I, my, the role of my work is to start conversation. I like to um, put together different images, different situations, in order to stimulate thought for the viewer. Um, it's not my intention to tell you what to think, but to have everyone talk to each other and, you know, share like a reflection on society. So a lot of these things, especially in the art market, um, is, is a trend in, um, in the lower 48 that's called social practice. And so the whole point of social practice is not to make a thing for sale, but to create an uh, environment or an experience. And so that's what I do as an artist. I create experiences. And uh, my experiences are also based on slightly my personal story. So the way that I'm going to tell this little presentation is by telling you my story. So this all starts in my last year of grad school in uh, Chicago. And so I met an art collector named Patrick McCoy. And he is the like, top art collector of African-American art um, in Chicago area. So one of the things he likes to do is invite people into his home to see his collection. And we're talking about paintings and sculptures and photographs that cover every single wall of his home. The windows, the doors, it's covered in art. So I want you to imagine that. Okay, <laughs> you're walking into this environment. And so my grad thesis was about his collection, because I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And so I saw this wonderful little snapshot, a black and white snapshot on the wall, like covered by all these like big paintings. And so I, I asked him, like, can I use this in my thesis? And he says to me, well, yes, you can use it, but if you want to use it, you're going to have to do the work. And I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> so. He goes into his office and he goes and he burns this CD and he gives it to me and it says, The Gift to Samantha Hill Pictures, you know, 2010, and signs it Patrick McCoy. So this is what he does as a practice. If he meets an artist that he likes, he gives them a collection of photographs that he took from 1980 to 1992. Um, he had a practice of taking at least one photograph a day and he would carry his camera on, um, around, right around his neck because he believed that, well, I don't have to go to school to learn how to be a photographer. If I do it every day and I practice, then I can be a great photographer. 
So he took all the photographs of black men and then he put it on this desk and he gives it to artists as inspiration with a set of instructions. You can show these photographs to anyone you want, but you just can't print them. You just show them on some type of computer screen and they should flicker every five seconds. There should be jazz playing in the background and then you should have a conversation um, about the 1980s. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> We're going to have a party, right? He goes, yeah, let's have a party. This is my party. So the gift, uh, the gift Project Chicago was me uh, curating 550 of those images. Um, and instead of putting them on a computer screen, I projected them in a church. Okay, so this church is at the University of Chicago, which is on a matter. Um, it's called Rockefeller Memorial Chapel. And I had uh, four sets of projections. This one that's in the back of the church um, that one is 16 feet by 20 feet. There's one in the front of the church uh, right here. Uh, and that one is um, over here is 9 feet by um, 6 feet. And then the two on the side um, are 4 feet by 6 feet. And so I wanted to play around with the architecture, so that's how I designed the layout. But they all flickered like, you know, around 30 seconds apart. And they were staggered. And so for the jazz, I was like, well, I don't want to just play jazz on a CD player. That's kind of boring. So this man standing in the pulpit that's like kind of blurred, <laughs> this is the DJ, right? So he, um, he's an electronic musician. Uh, he goes by the name of Fluid. Um, and so he composed a jazz score on his deck. So since it's a projections, right, the lights have to be off in the uh, church. So the deck kind of illuminated him. And the perfect place to place him was in the pulpit. <laughs> so he became like, you know, another, like, um, he's also an African-American man, so another person, like, you know, as part of the show, people go watch him kind of jam out while they're looking at all the photographs that kind of surrounded the space. An interesting thing in these photographs, the subject matter I selected um, were based on different topics of the 80s. So you saw um, yuppies and fedoras next to Rolls Royces, next to uh, pictures of homeless, next to pictures of breakdancers, um, street parties, um, and also like the blue scene on the south side of Chicago. Um, Patrick was a, a world traveler, so basically the photographs ranged from Chicago across the United States, Zambia, the Caribbean, and London. So all of that, all those on different subject matters of 12 years were rotated in this space for 75 minutes, and then it turned off and we all just drank wine and cheese. <laughs> um, and my reasoning for doing this in such a short amount of time is because when you do a happening, right, do an event that lasts for a short period of time, it gives a person um, a more intense experience. They feel like, okay, if I'm going to see this, I'm going to experience it, I have to go tonight, you know. If I wait till, if it's a, you know, an art show in a gallery and it's opening night, you may or may not go. Maybe you'll go later. You might forget, you know. But if it's a happening, then, like, you know, you'll make a note to go. And it, it kind of puts uh, this experience in your memory. And that, for me, is the art. So this whole experience of working with uh, Patrick's collection really inspired me. And I was like, I want to work with more collections. But, you know, Working with the archive, not all archives are open. And so I started to collect photographs. First, I started to collect photographs of World War II nurses. Um, I was pretty fascinated with them. So I started to buy, I bought five photographs for $94. Um, but then there was a little, um, in this like kind of thrift store, but then there was this little box full of like odds and ends of photographs of African-Americans, and it just said mystery lot, $7. So I was like, okay, let's just round this out to an even $100 and just pick up the mystery lot and just see what's going on here. So I go home, I take my box, my little corporate box of mystery photos, and I open it up and I find the most amazing snapshots, you know, ranging from like 1940s all the way to the 1970s. And my favorite one was an eight by 10 colorized photograph of this like young man with this huge afro and he's wearing a red velour suit 
and he has on a gold chain, like Scorpio, <laughs> and he's kind of staring out, and he has hazel eyes, but the colorist, they made his eyes a gold, so they kind of glowed at you, like he was like, like a, a tiger or a lion or something, and I was just like, oh my god, this guy looks so awesome, it's like a living painting right here, but then next to it was this little boy, there's a toddler, and he's running in the yard, and it's like around like 1972, and he's wearing a little jumper, and there's like a, a VW bug in the background, and he's just like out on a full break, like he's getting ready to cross like the finish line, and so I have these two photographs side by side, and I'm looking at them, and I'm just like, okay, this little boy is the one you want to play with, and this guy's the one you want to take home from the bar. Okay, we can make some really cool art from that. <laughs> what kind of conversation can we have? So this is me at, at the McCall Center for um, a Visual Arts and Innovation. And so there I started to play um, with the archive, this, what I call the Kinship Project, which now is over 3,000 images, um, ephemera. I have, um, I have maps, um, tintypes, um, different types of scrapbooks, um, and then objects. I also started just to collect objects. Most of the things that I have are from um, 1839 to 1942 um, that are object-based. So all of that lives into my living room, and occasionally when I go out on residency, it travels with me. <laughs> um, so I started to use this as the basis for making installations, and then also collecting stories. So what I would do in Chicago is um, I decided, well, let me find out more about this place, because I'm not originally from Chicago. I'm from Philadelphia. And so I was working in this um, community called Bronzeville, which is the first African-American community in Chicago. And it's also the home of Chicago Blues. So I was really interested in the people there, and I started having um, conversations. And I would bring these photographs with me, and everyone started talking about the Great Migration. Now, the Great Migration is this time period between um, 1916 um, to 1960, when many African Americans were coming from the Deep South to the North in order to find work. Um, well, I'm from the North, from Philadelphia, and my grandparents came up in that migration, and they never spoke about it. And when I would ask them, what was life like for you, you know, before you came up North, they wouldn't answer the question. They're just like, you don't want to know. It's like, life's good here, let's talk about good things. But in Chicago, there's still a connection to the South. People would still go back down to visit relatives. They would bring things. Um, and so people were telling me about like, how they got to Chicago and what life was like. So I recorded those stories of life in Mississippi, life on the train, and then like reflections in Chicago. And so that played in a shack that was built on the top of an art center. And I kind of strung up all of the photographs from um, 1916 to 1960 in um, this shack. So you could hear the stories. And if you wanted to really look at them, because you're in the dark, there's no electricity, except for the play of the soundtrack, you would have to hold on one of these kerosene lamps. And so a lot of people spend a lot of time in the shack and in a long time, like looking at the photographs, because they have this, like, you know, kerosene lamp to kind of activate it. And so that for me um, was important because every person that walked into the shack, they saw the people interacting with it. So it's almost like you're walking into a stage set, into a living painting. And so the people who are inside are part of the work. And, and some very interesting conversations came from that and, um, and thoughts and processes. So let's uh, go back into, now we're back in uh, Charlotte. And I'm collecting stories in Charlotte, and I really became interested in the tintype. Um, the reason why I'm very interested in tintypes is because out of all of these photographs that I've collected, um, if you look, I have some photographs that I have to uh, manipulate within Photoshop from the 1950s and 60s because they've been faded out over time. But the tintypes that were made in, um, this one's from 1867, is clear, it's crisp, it's nice, um, and it's more durable. Uh, even some of the tintypes that I have that are slightly damaged, it's, they're still like better quality than paper, and so I became very fascinated with that, with um, having the idea of moments frozen in time. So 
basically I decided I want to start photographing people using antique cameras um, to talk about that. So um, this is actually um, Daryl Gatson. He is a, um, a minister and a barber in Charlotte, North Carolina in a neighborhood called uh, Double Oaks, which is currently under gentrification. Um, so basically the community is like the houses are becoming, they're being bought and then torn down to put up like these like $300,000 homes and a few mixed income homes. But basically this neighborhood has a very rich history of music um, and also um, different uh, activities in the civil rights movement. So I thought it was important to document people in tintype to preserve that marker of history of this is where they used to live, this is who they are, um, before they're moved to a different region um, of the city or the state. So that's me with the uh, Connolly Foley Petty camera uh, circa 1907. So I basically spent my whole residency learning how to make that work. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. It's like you get a camera like this. It's not like a instruction manual, right? And, and then, like, you know, I'm doing dry plates, so I had to figure all that thing, everything out with light. And I was testing it in Chicago, and then when I started to test it in Charlotte, then all of my notes were wrong because of different climate, you know, different light source and stuff like that. And so I was like... Yeah, I had to really like learn how to make it work. So that took me like two and a half months to make it work. <laughs> but everything like really turned out because we have this wonderful uh, photograph right here of Daryl. Um, little side note, uh, the cat, right? So you're like, okay, he has to sit there for like approximately a minute, you know? Why is there a cat and it's like totally frozen in time? Well, that's because Daryl, He's a very interesting man. He uh, loves animals, but he's also a germaphobic. So he's like, I love cats, but they make too much of a mess with the kitty litter and everything else like that. So this is my pet cat. This is like a little porcelain cat, you know? <laughs> and, and the cat, like, you know, she lives right there in the ottoman, and, you know, that's her place. And so I'm like, you know, talking to my assistant, and we're like, we got to pull the cat into the shot, man. It, just, it has to go in there. So... <laughs> So that's why we have uh, Daryl with his wonderful little porcelain cat um, as a document of him and his home. So now I'm like back in Chicago, and I, I was curated into a show called Risk. Um, and it was all about empathy and social practice. In Chicago, um, social practice is like the hot thing to do. <laughs> it's, in the lower 48, actually, social practice is the one of the most um, popular art forms that is being produced today. But, and people are doing it in various major cities, but Chicago is the most popular. Um, and also Chicago artists are doing the most innovative work. The reason for this is for several reasons. Most of us who are, um, if you're living in New York or you're living in LA, then you're participating more heavily in the art market. So that means that someone's going to like, you know, purchase your work. Um, and that's how you kind of think about making work. But in Chicago, we have a, like, a lot of universities, a lot of schools. And then also the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, I want you to think about this, even though it's an art conservatory, think about it like a think tank. So like all of us are just basically like, you know, reading and spouting theory and asking questions and making things. A lot of us, some of us make things that are for sale. Um, some of us make, don't make things that are for sale. We're just making things to add to the conversation. So because of that, um, we started to make things for the street. And um, uh, the ironic thing is, is that people started going more to the street art than they were going to the museum. So then the museum decides, we're going to pull these people into this museum, into the gallery, you know, because they have such a following. And so this is my, my friend Fahim. He's the one that makes the shack. And this shack is his art center. <laughs> and um, this will be the third time that I've um, actually uh, collaborated with Fahim, and so I put in the story of um, the founder of the Brownsville Historical Society in this shack. Um, so she's actually, the interesting thing about Sherry Williams is that she gives tours of different locations, historic locations on the south side of Chicago, but when she does this, she dresses up like a runaway slave, 
and she gives like bird watching tours. I don't know why. <laughs> but I like the idea of it. It's very performative, you know. Okay, she's like wearing like the gingham dress and the wrap, and she has on these like really funky dark glasses, and she's walking through, and there's children running around and looking for birds, and they're identifying plants, and like you know, thought it was really cool. So you see her like, um, unfortunately, um, video doesn't always show up when you snap it. But if you were to walk into the gallery and look through the window, it looks like you're kind of looking into the woods. And you see her and all these children running around, and you hear her telling the story about how she founded her um, art center, her um, foundation. But then inside of it, I made all these ten types of um, images from her archive, um, which were all found photographs in the Bronzeville area. Um, a lot of them were things that people just threw away, and people picked them out of the trash and then gave them to her to save. And so she has approximately, I would say, 60 years of Bronzeville history in a little cottage um, in Bronzeville. Yeah, uh, so I thought it was pretty poignant to kind of make this kind of a, you know, to select the images I thought that were really interesting and then made these ten types um, and place them into this little shack. I'm sorry I'm just talking and talking. Does anyone have any questions so far? Are we... Where did you buy the boxes? You said in the antique store? Oh, eBay. Oh, that was eBay. It wasn't a location for us. Oh, no. So basically what happens is this. Um, to get those cameras, if you go into a shop, an actual shop, unless you're in the deep south, you're going to pay, like, an outrageous amount of money. Like, people will charge you, like, thousands of dollars for them. But sometimes people will sell things on eBay. They don't necessarily know what they have. Or because there's so much of it on eBay that the market drops down. So if it's like I bought my camera for like approximately like $167. So if I was to go into like an antique store, I would pay approximately. And how do you get the supplies? Oh, so the supplies, basically I buy the photo emulsion. I can also make it. Um, you can buy that from um, chemical suppliers online. Um, and then I make the plates. So I cut um, aluminum and steel plate. I um, sand them down. I basically polish, clean, prime the surfaces, paint the surfaces, um, pour the emulsion. The whole process itself takes approximately three weeks. Um, and not like three weeks working steady, like, you know, cut, dry, let things sit up, stuff like that. But then um, once I pour the emulsion, I have a, a time limit of three days in order to shoot. And then I have to develop. After three days, then the, the image will fog. So it's like if you work in tintype, then you have to have this whole idea of expecting the unexpected, dealing with failure, and being wonderfully surprised by the result. <laughs> yeah. But, Oh, okay, so basically, um, this is real, uh, real quick, and then I'll go back and then we yeah, can yeah. continue. Um, art industry is not like a gallery in the street. It's not like you're just putting up a whole bunch of photographs that are framed and things like that. They're more like interventions. So they're more like things that you walk into, like the shack on the top of a building. Um, like, uh, especially in Chicago, you have to understand there's something about place. So a lot of um, interventions... Do we have internet access? I can also show you. Um, oh yeah, um, I can do that really quick at the end. Uh, I'll show you like three kind of inter. We're gonna have to put this. Oh no, we can we can do that later. Oh yeah. So, but uh, basically, this kind of gives you an idea of what that looks like. Um, imagine you're walking down the street and all of a sudden there's a person and they're sitting. Um, there's a box, like a huge box, and it has a door attached to this box. And on the top of the door, it says, like, open me. And so then you open this door, and you walk in. And all of a sudden, you see a cave. And then you walk into the cave. And then there's, like, all these, like, 
it's like you step into like you know the Neolithic period, okay? Um, but this is the streets of New York, right? And so that's a piece. That's an artwork. Right, but so I'm just thinking of just kind of oh. here we have a lot of things about permits. You know, to do a, you know, you need a permit to. You can't just go on the street and do something, right? Well, it depends. <laughs> well, it depends on what it is that you're doing. Like some places, you need a permit. Um, there's also a lot of permits um, in Chicago on certain parts of the city. So people were doing uh, things on the south side where there were <coughs> permits. Um, so it's like, so you kind of change things up. Depending, it's depending on what you do. And then like if you want to do something that's in another area where you need a permit, then you do that. But then like in Philadelphia, like if you wanted to do something, the permit costs like, you know, $40. And they also will wire sound like for you for $40. And then the only thing is that then the cop will come back like, in two hours and say, okay, unplug, and then it's done. So every city has its own different thing. But a lot of these pop-ups, because we're talking about artists and not a lot of money, uh, they're kind of breaking the law. So basically, like, yeah, it's in the art world on the lower 48, getting arrested is part of the game. <laughs> and if you get arrested, you become famous. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like controversy is big, and like you know, I like to say like the art world in the lower forty-eight is just like high school. You know, the cool kid does things a little bit bad, like you know. So a friend of mine, he does this in Brooklyn, and actually he was just selling T-shirts. Actually, one he did, uh, it's called Money to Burn. So he's on Wall Street, and he clips all these like dollar bills on himself. And he walks into Wall Street, um, this is like Dred Scott, and he takes the dollar bill off and he goes, money to burn, money to burn. Does anyone have any money to burn? And he takes out a lighter and he goes, boom. And he's burning money on Wall Street. And then he asks his people to do it. So then people are walking up to him, taking a dollar bill off and burning money on Wall Street. And he's like, and he's singing the whole time, money to burn, money to burn. So, of course, the cop, he's filming this whole thing, and the cops come up, and they say, like, why are you burning money on the street? That's illegal. And, <laughs> and he goes, oh, I'm doing a performance. I'm an artist, da 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 And then they say, you can't do that. you got to stop right now. And he goes, okay, officers, I'll stop. I'll stop. And then he turns around, and he walks away. And as he walks away, he starts singing again, money to burn. And the cops go, you know. And everyone starts clapping. They're like, what? This is completely illegal. <laughs> but it's like, the thing is, on the lower 48, artists that do social practice were also considered activists. And so there's certain things that we do to like push and stimulate thought and discussion. And so some of the things that we do are jarring. You know? Yes. Can you use the microphones so those oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I thought my voice was traveling. Um, so basically, to get back to that, I'm sorry. So a lot of uh, social practice artists, a lot of things that they do, um, it's like they, they want to stimulate conversation about current events. Um, so things, it could be about like economics. It can be about, um, you know, different social issues, or anything that you see constantly in the news and people kind of, they see it and don't really think that much about it anymore, then they make an artwork about it and then it kind of pushes it into your mind. And so for me, I like to make art that also talks about social issues, but I don't want to, I don't want to take a pot and just bang you over the head with something you see every day on the news. I want you to like look at a photograph and think about these things. Um, and stimulate your own thoughts and emotional response, and then have a discussion about that. Um, let me continue. So this is actually, this is a really weird photograph, but I want to show you the installation so you can kind of understand what's going on here. So with the Bronzeville Historical Society, I took um, their archive, and I made this um, artwork called Topographical, Topographical depictions of the Bronzeville Renaissance. Uh, right now, there's a big conversation in that area that we're going through a Renaissance. We are rebuilding what was built, like in the uh, at the beginning of our like migration. So they're at the hundred years of their migration period, and so um, 
I was like, well, what is this renaissance? And no one could really tell me. So I was like, okay, let's kind of flush out this idea. So what I did was I posted, I made this like um, installation, which kind of resembles a music score. And then I put all these photographs laid up into it. Um, because it's in a hallway, it's really hard to shoot. But then I asked people to put a memory, you know, look at the photograph and put in their own personal memory to talk about uh, the dialogue of experience and place. So people started writing down some like, you know, pretty funny and quirky memories. <laughs> so um, people were writing notes um, about photographs, writing notes to each other, um, memories, thoughts, jokes. Um, but this one I even thought was pretty interesting. Um, it's like the handsome, um, the handsome dude um, at the left reminds me of my first boyfriend. How um, I miss him. Love you, buddy. So you wrote, so, and then they signed it Rick. So I was like, awesome. <laughs> and so um, a lot of these photographs, like uh, Bronzeville was really known for like the blues scene and the jazz scene and the night scene. So um, I really wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. So I decided to do a series of performances based off the photograph. So this is recreating moments from the Bronzeville Historical Society snapshots. So this is called um, Stomping at the Parkway Ballroom. The Parkway Ballroom is actually um, one of the first dance halls in Bronzeville. Um, also, it was the place that started many careers of people like Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, Sun Ra. Um, but if you were to go in Bronzeville today, which is actually a really beautiful street, you would see this black building without a historic marker. Um, up and down this street, this avenue, you see all these different historic markers of people who lived there, but nothing in front of the Parkway Ballroom. So I was like, let's open up the Parkway Ballroom and let's relive the heyday of the golden age of blues in Chicago. So I basically talked to the owners and they let me have it for one night and brought in a blues band and they all dressed up in period and we had a party. And that was to kind of recreate those moments that were seen in these snapshots. Um, so performance work, as, as you guys can tell, I'm a performer. <laughs> uh, so after I did that, I was invited by the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. And um, they wanted me to create a series of performances based off of their archive. So that is a little trickier because um, now we're talking about not these like moments of people's lives, but now we're talking about contemporary art. And so um, I wanted to do something that was fun and was still very about this moment and now that people could relate to. So I started with the Chris Burton um, Body Works um, performance in 1975. So this is one of the first uh, performance pieces that was done at the MCA, um, where Chris Burton, he laid under this pane of glass for approximately three days and he said that he would not move until someone actually asked him a question or spoke to him. And so basically people walked into the museum and they didn't speak to him. And they just kind of looked at him under this glass. And so uh, people uh, at the museum were getting kind of nervous. They were like, well, isn't he going to get up now? Like, you know, <laughs> he hasn't eaten from, like, for days. He hasn't, like, you know, drinking any water. So um, there was an intern who basically, or I'm not sure if it was an intern or an employee, decided that they were just going to put this glass of water right next to his feet. So as soon as he does that, he jumps up, breaks the glass, breaks the clock, and so the performance ends, and then he drinks the water, and they feed him, and they're just like, ah. It's like, oh, okay, this artist almost died in the MCA. And so that made, like, you know, history for that. But I thought it was very interesting, this whole idea of interaction. So I decided to do a series of performances called Temp Body Performances. So um, basically the people at the MCA, I asked them to go into the museum and to um, do different actions together based off of this exhibit, which is the Ann Collier exhibit. And so a big part of that was selfies. So people were basically doing different types of selfies based off of the art they saw in the MCA that day. And so that was inspired by Chris Burden, and that's my way of kind of doing that because we don't want to make something that's going to kill people, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's go move on here. Uh, so now we're kind of coming full circle. So I wanted to kind of show you 
um, what I'm seeing here with the McCutcheon Collection at uh, the Anchorage Museum and kind of compare it to one of the images from the Gift Project Chicago. Because that's the interesting thing about a snapshot. A snapshot is um, someone noticing something occurring within time and having this gut reaction to document it. And so here you see two different protests, right? They have two different uh, distinct themes. I'm going to back up because I hear feedback. Can you guys still hear me? All right. So um, with Patrick McCoy, who's an amateur photographer, um, he's shooting a picture of, of his brother who he just runs into, like surprisingly, at this protest. Okay. Um, whereas here in the Steve McClutchin, um, we have this protest that has a lot to do with the draft. Okay. Um, I don't know the complete story behind this image right here, the McClutchin, but what I thought was pretty interesting is that, you know, we have this man here who's like holding up this bill in his, in his draft card number, right? In correlation to these people who are like holding up these um, signs saying protect us from sin and Jesus loves me, you know? And so that just kind of adds this question of like, what is the conversation happening at this moment? You know, what are people considering? Uh, and what are the protests? Like, you know, this is like during a parade as well. So it's like, what does it mean to have like this protest or this like kind of this in the middle of a like, you know, a community parade? So yeah, that's uh, my presentation. And yeah, any, do we do questions or you do yours or how should we go? <laughs> Okay, so anyone have questions? Yes? How did you use the interviews you said you took of people with that first? So what I usually do is I edit like um, either one interview or several interviews into a single sound track to tell, like to recreate a narrative. Um, and when I put them with the images, the images do not match the, uh, the, the person's story. Uh, the reason why I do that in particular is because, I, again, I'm not telling you, you know, my thoughts, but I am sending you little subliminal messages through the things that I select. Um, but I want you to kind of listen to a person and start to think, like, you know, what kind of conversation would you have with this person that was sitting in front of you? Um, I like to use a soundtrack instead of a video. It's because when you see a picture of someone, an actual image, then people automatically project their thoughts about that person based on their looks. Um, and if you just hear a person's voice, it gives you certain markers. It can tell you um, a person's age. It could tell you a person's like um, identity of like location or like nationality, but maybe not, you know? And so when you're free from that, that's when like, you know, the ideas start to pop, like, to pop into the mind. Would you play them when people walk into the little house? Oh, yeah. So it's playing oh, when you walk so into the little house. Oh, yeah. So when you walk, so that's the interesting thing. When you walk up to the little house, you hear the mumbling of the sound. And then when you walk in, it becomes a little louder, and you're surrounded by it. Uh, sometimes I cut it up with uh, music. So like a, you'll hear a story that's about five minutes long, and then you'll hear like a sound by, of music that's about two minutes long, and then you hear another story. Um, Usually when I do that, people stay into the, the area or little house a little longer because the music kind of breaks things up. People are just like, I want to hear the music. Like, uh, for instance, in the, um, in the hallway of the Hyde Park Art Center with all the like, uh, post-its, there were stories playing there as well, but then I had a lot of old-timey music. So I started, some people with like this um, ragtime jazz. And um, also, usually when I'm doing an installation, I'm hiding somewhere in the installation watching, be playing the social cultural anthropologist. Okay. <laughs> so I'm watching how people interact. And so I saw this one young couple, uh, they were in their 20s, and they get up to the installation near the top of the hallway, and they hear the ragtime music, and they decided to jitterbug down the hall and skip down the hall. And then they went through backwards, and that's how they, they did it. I'm interested in things like that. Anybody else? Awesome. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much.
So I was super excited um, to find out that Samantha was going to be our artist in residence this fall because I was already up to my nose in an exhibition that opens Friday uh, called 100 Snapshots. So um, Samantha's love of found photography and amateur photography fit really well um, with the theme of this exhibition. And um, it was exciting to geek out with somebody in-house, you know, finding these intimate shots and you get sort of sucked into somebody else's life and you find yourself creating a narrative for them. And Samantha does the very same and not only that, she takes it sort of that step farther and creates an experience. Um, so not only do you have these intimate photographs, but she creates an intimate environment for you to sort of mold them over. And, um, we're excited to have you here. There's a big event at the museum on Friday, November 13th, called Future Tense, and um, she'll actually be doing an intervention on the fourth floor in the 100 Snapshots exhibition, so if you have a chance to come by, you can get tickets online. Uh, all right. Oops, I'm skipping ahead. So before we get started, um, like I said, exhibit opens on Friday. It's going to feature 100 amateur snapshot photographs from the museum archives taken in and around Anchorage throughout the last 100 years. The images in tonight's presentation are a selection from that exhibition. While the ideas and concepts we'll talk about tonight are broad, the images are only a tiny fraction of the nearly 700,000 images the museum collection currently holds. As you've heard Samantha attest to, image research can easily grow to an obsession. For this exhibit, I've reviewed close to 30,000 images, and it still pains me regularly to think of what I may have missed in collections left unseen. The archival collections are open to the public Tuesday through Friday from 10 to 2, and I hope you will pay us all a visit sometime. If you have any questions regarding access, please feel free to grab me at the end of tonight's presentation, or you can visit our website at anchoragemuseum.org and click on the Collections tab. Since its invention in the late 1830s, a series of landmark technological inventions transformed photography from a wondrous curiosity practiced only by professionals to a part of everyday life. Heavy commercially manufactured glass plate negatives gave way to flexible, lightweight film negatives and roll holders, making cameras smaller, lighter, and more portable. Improvements in lenses and negative emulsions made instantaneous exposures possible, leading to the advent of the snapshot. The labor-intensive, time-consuming, and complicated craft of developing and printing film were offered as a service product by manufacturers like Kodak, who coined the slogan, you press the button and we do the rest. By 1900, American families could purchase a Kodak box camera for a dollar, which is roughly equivalent to $25 today. I really love this quote from the Kodak Primer. You, anyone, can make photographs without study, trouble, experiment, chemicals, darkroom, and even without soiling the fingers. <laughs> Samantha knows that all too well, I'm sure, with your tintypes. Great technological innovations of the 20th century changed the character of American life, too. Telephones, railroads, airplanes, bicycles, outboard motors, automobiles, streetcars. Industrialization had collapsed distances, accelerated the pace of life, and created a larger, more prosperous middle class than ever before. Americans embraced a new division between work and play and emphasized family, domesticity, and leisure as the greatest sources of personal happiness. The name of the photograph on the left, the inscription on the back is All Day Suckers. George Eastman of Kodak and Eastman was a brilliant businessman. Recognizing the cultural shift towards domesticity and leisure, he heavily advertised to women and children. He promoted the camera as a proper diversion and amusement and touted its exclusive ability to capture childhood's most precious and fleeting moments. So I really love this staged and sweet moment with the, the baby precariously perched on top of the basket. His advertising also heavily featured the new technologies that came to define the modern era, claiming codec as you go. The camera seamlessly became an essential part of modern experience. 
These ads, beginning in the 20s, often featured young, stylish, independent, and predominantly upper-to-middle-class white women out enjoying the newfound freedoms afforded to them by the 20th century. I really love this lower image here. If I, I, I want to buy that camera now. Look at that defiant stance in her short hair and her bare arms, athletic pose. The Kodak advertising is a deep rabbit hole to tumble down, and I highly recommend diving in headfirst if you have the time or interest. In the year following the end of World War II, Americans took more than 1.5 million snapshots, and that number continued to soar. By the mid-1950s, more than 2 billion snapshots were made annually in the United States. By 1954, more than 70% of the nation's families owned cameras. The proliferation, proliferation of snapshot photography throughout the 20th century gave anyone and everyone the ability to chronicle their lives through pictures. The stories they tell are private moments, deeply felt and authentic, and we, the viewers, are the interlopers. I love Susan Sontag. Her book on photography is great if you haven't read it. Um, here she says, the photographer stays behind his or, home his or her camera, creating a tiny element of another world the image world that bids to outlast us all. These documents of personal history have revolutionized the way we experience our world with a simple push of a button. Snapshots, that is, photographs that are casually made, are an accident-prone medium resulting in images that are immediate, incidental, and random. They easily capture the energy and flux of our modern existence. It is precisely this nature that makes them compelling visual artifacts capable of revealing who we are and how we relate to friends, family, and the larger world. The act of picture taking itself has become ritualized. We take snapshots to commemorate important events, to document travels, to see how we look in pictures, to externalize the commonplace, and to extract some iota of continuity or narrative from our own existence in an otherwise chaotic world. The poet, writer, and film critic Vachel Lindsay argued in 1922, this is 1922, that modern manifestations of the image in America demanded a new form of visual literacy. He said, American civilization grows more hieroglyphic every day the cartoons of Darling, the advertisements in the back of the magazines and on the billboards and in the streetcars, the acres of photographs in the Sunday newspapers make us into a hieroglyphic civilization far nearer to Egypt than to England. Lindsay argues that American culture is to be understood and articulated by ferreting out meaning from the seemingly chaotic system of visual signs generated daily on a massive scale. So what does this mean? We all, as individuals, now have the ability to contribute our own story to this visual narrative. This is a classic game we've been doing for a long time. All right. What do these images say about our values and our relationships? About our place within a community, a country, the broader world? Or in this particular case, the food chain? The human eye is vulnerable, biased, and easily bewitched, whereas the camera's eye is sober and impassive. It captures background details and cultural rhythms otherwise invisible in our own time. The significance of these photographic details increases with the passage of time, as documentation of people and place, but also as records of the emotional connections to and investments in our communities. Personal photographs and albums have the power to reveal the impact of place on a resident's daily life. We can each relate to the everyday depicted in these images. Unnecessary people. We can relate to the anniversaries and the celebrations. The weather, the markers of time. The life that happens amidst the landscape. or the life that doesn't happen in the office. I love that face. 
Sometimes I feel that way. Not usually, but sometimes. It is vital that a museum's collection grow with the community to represent the continuous flow of families, cultures, and perspectives. Our place is made up of thousands of individual stories. Intimate snapshots become our collective story. They become our collective memory. I love the caption of this photo. Who's that man? I was wondering the very same thing. Who is that man? Who is he now? Where is he now? Did he stay in Anchorage? What is his relationship with that woman? Was that their home in the background? Who did the laundry? Today, digital photography has made snapshots more prevalent than ever before. The internet and social media have replaced in-home slideshows and screenings. Handheld devices allow for constant and continuous documentation and the capacity to instantly alter and share photos with friends, family, and the rest of the world. Every day, billions of people are carefully crafting their visual narrative, their story of place, their desired identity online, and consuming the carefully crafted stories of others. The majority of snapshots now live in tangible lives. They have moved from physical objects to immaterial projections on a digital screen that, in some cases, are incapable of being completely destroyed while others are gone in a blink of an eye. And they say millennials are bad. So I leave you with a few things. Your images matter. Your family and personal collections matter. Think about what visual story you're telling and how you're planning to preserve those stories. And I hope, too, that you'll help us to tell a more complete story of Alaska by considering the donation of your family or personal collections, especially if your photographs tell new stories of Anchorage that aren't captured in the 100 Snapshots exhibition. Uh, if you'd like to get hands-on with albums from the collection, please join us on December 4th on the fourth floor. Um, it's a first Friday, so the museum is free after 6 o'clock. We'll be pulling some of the albums in the collection, which are really beautiful. Um, and unlike the photos that you saw here, and unlike the photos that are in the exhibition, they'll be in their original context. So you'll actually see the narratives and read the captions and see the handwriting. And um, it's a great chance to engage with the collection. So thanks again for having us tonight. Heritage.